As a child, I had a difficult time making friends, remembers Dorothea Juno Johnson of Cambridge. One day, the in-crowd included me in a little prank they were going to play on one of the less popular students. I was pulled in by the flattery and the feeling of being part of something. Cindy was funny-looking and didn't seem clean most of the time. I'm sure that most of us thought that whatever she had was contagious. What we did not see was that the part of her that was contagious was her feeling of being left out of all of the fun. Here was the plan. We would play a game of tag, and whoever tagged Cindy it would slap her hard in the face. I did it. I was smiling until I saw the look on her face and was too shocked to say anything. The whole group turned on me with a vengeance, as if I had thought up the idea and had acted on my own. They would have nothing to do with me after that. I had hit the home run, but for the wrong team. It took a while for me to become less than a pariah on the playground. I could not get myself to talk to Cindy. I didn't get it that Cindy needed a friend every bit as much or maybe more than I did. If I could speak to Cindy today, I'd say, I was the one who was unclean. You and I don't have to go back to childhood to remember a mistake we have made, though the mistakes from childhood often haunt us for the rest of our lives. Some of us were picked on as children. Some of us were bullies as children or teenagers. Some of us have fond memories of school, neighborhood friends, and sporting activities, and some of us just survived those things. I meet people who seem to be stuck somewhere in childhood. I meet people who go through life timid and wounded. And I meet people who bully other people as adults, just as they bullied other kids. No one avoids making mistakes. We know this. No one manages to live life without a few emotional scrapes and bruises. But why do some of us manage to move on from those scrapes and bruises? And why do some of us perpetuate them over and over again? Mistakes are inevitable. But how are we redeemed? How are we made whole again? One of the hardest things for a Unitarian Universalist church to do is to remember that it is more than a social organization. Without Jesus or Buddha or a Torah or a Quran to read, religion in a UU church is fainter, more subtle. You're probably getting a bigger dose of God this morning than you have in months. Our theological agreement to let people believe what they want results in our not talking much about our own beliefs. 
for one Sunday hour a few times a month. We might approach spirituality here in this sanctuary, but we always keep an exit in sight. You and I often substitute good works, social action as we call it, for religious beliefs, but this only compounds the problem. First Parish does social action, but so does every Rotary Club and Habitat for Humanity and the Girl Scouts and a thousand other nonprofit organizations. We gather for friendship, socializing, and learning, but so do bridge clubs and community choirs and contra dances. Forgetting that ours is a religious organization is our mistake. By emphasizing social bonds, over religious practice, we run the risk of recreating a children's playground where there is a clear pecking order and the unpopular kids have it really rough. What will make the difference here at First Parish in Concord is a culture of kindness that we build together. This kindness will allow us to humble ourselves and acknowledge our mistakes. What will make the difference is our ability to recognize that we have harmed one another in word and deed. What will make a difference is our ability to give and to accept forgiveness. Now, Concord is a proud place. And Unitarian Universalists are a proud people, and First Parish is a proud church. And it is also a compassionate church. Its people can repent and be forgiven. We, too, can be redeemed. Just down Elm Street, here in Concord, our religious siblings at Temple Karem Shalom are celebrating the Jewish High Holy Days. During these days of awe, Jews enter the temple and think about the ways that they have lived the past year. Each member of the community will sincerely and contritely confess their shortcomings. Each will vow to live better in the future. And each will receive forgiveness, actual forgiveness. Forgiveness from the rabbi, forgiveness from the congregation, and forgiveness from God. The true blessing of Yom Kippur is that it is a new beginning, a fresh start. Jews hit the cosmic reset button once a year, and it helps them live better. It helps them from getting caught up in their own mistakes. It redeems them. When she was asked why she started the Forgiveness Project in 2004, Marianne Caracuzino says, It began with my anger at the Iraq War. Anger at the rush to war. Anger at the dominant narrative of retaliation. Anger at the black and white thinking that says, If you're not with us, you're against us. I was fascinated, she continues, by the notion that forgiveness might be a way of putting things right between conflicting individuals or groups. And I was interested in forgiveness as a pain management strategy, a means of self-healing and renewal. 
I became determined to collect stories that showed peaceful solutions to conflict, stories where victims had met their offenders, where people had forgiven the killer of a loved one, or where former perpetrators had transformed their aggression into a force for peace. Clearly, forgiveness is something powerful. Clearly, those of us who can forgive ourselves and others live freer lives. There is something healing in reconciling the past. There is something healing in moving beyond old wounds. There is something healing in admitting that we will never be perfect or even good. The other day I was remembering some of my own journey from the reactive way of going through life that I had been raised with to the humility that I try imperfectly to ground myself in these days. You see, I was that unpopular, scared kid on the playground. I was the weak one in my macho family. I was the boy who tried to do everything perfectly so adults would accept me and praise me. Like every single person here this morning, I came out of childhood damaged. There is no other way to grow up. Only because the seminary encouraged it did I start to get some therapy in my late 20s. Frankly, I thought therapy would be a waste of time and money. It's really expensive. No one else in my family had ever been to see a therapist. Why would I want to dredge up all of those old, awful memories? But I went because I couldn't go forward without it. That year would be the first of three therapy stints that would change my life. In therapy, I quickly realized that I had never learned to forgive. I had not forgiven myself or anyone else. I had just survived the bullying and the emotional punishment. I had built stories up around my parents and my grandparents that made them better people than they actually were. I had developed a romantic story to tell about growing up on a cattle ranch in Montana, a romantic story that was a pretty wrapper on a really difficult situation. None of these realizations came easily. To this day, I associate therapy with tears. Tears and tears and more tears. Endless torrents of tears, tears to begin the session, tears to end the session, a sobbing wreck week after week. It was not pretty. It was so bad during my second stint that I would have to go for a walk after the therapy session or sit in the car for half an hour because I was too drunk on my own emotions to drive. So toxic was the material I had dredged up that I could not function properly, sometimes for the rest of the day. 
I quickly learned to schedule my sessions in the late afternoon when I had the evening free. In talking about my life, I was being redeemed, but it was hard work and it was emotionally costly, and I would do every bit of it over again. It saved me. I saw therapy as holy work. Prayer got me through the door of the therapist's office each week because God knows I didn't want to go. And prayer got me safely home afterwards. What would it be like at First Parish in Concord if we could tell each other stories like this one? What would it be like if we could confess our mistakes to one another? What would it be like if we could all admit that we are broken and in need of healing? What would it be like if we stopped striving for perfection and sought true compassion? How much healthier might we be? How many more people might we attract what better use might be we be to the world? I don't want to suggest that we lack the ability to be real with one another. We are a highly capable people. We know what we need to do. We just seem to lack the will or the desire at times. Very soon we will stand and sing together. There is a wideness in your mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in your justice, which is more than liberty. But we make your love too narrow by false limits of our own, and we magnify your strictness with a zeal you will not own. For the love of God is broader than the measures of our minds, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. I suggest that we sing this song as a prayer. Let us sing it as a prayer for ourselves, reassurance that we are worthy of forgiveness and love, let us sing it as a prayer for this congregation that it might be a place where compassion and concern outweigh vainglory. Lastly, let us sing it as a prayer to all that is dear and all that is holy, a lilting offering to beauty and to life and to God herself. Let this song ascribe our names in the book of life for the coming year, let it guide our words and our deeds. So be it. Amen.